0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Irritable Bowel Syndrome, or IBS, is a common intestinal problem affecting more than 30 million Americans.
2: While IBS is a chronic condition, many people can control their symptoms by managing diet, lifestyle, and stress.
1: On today's program, we'll discuss treatment for IBS with a Mayo Clinic expert.
2: Also on the program, we'll learn about a recently approved, fast-acting treatment for hard-to-treat depression. That's this week's program, up next.
1: We all can be irritable at one time or another even you <laughs> and, keep so, my mouth shut. Yeah, and so can our bowel there is a medical condition called irritable bowel syndrome that affects the large intestine it can cause abdominal cramping bloating and a change in bowel habits either diarrhea or constipation ibs is common in fact it's the most
2: common intestinal problem that causes people to be referred to a bowel specialist a gastroenterologist like the one that's here with us today, Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist and irritable bowel expert, Dr. Robert Cratchley. Welcome to the program, Dr. Crachley. It's nice to meet you.
3: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Hi, Dr. Critchley.
1: Um So irritable bowel syndrome is what keeps most gastroenterologists busy?
3: Absolutely. I think in physicians in general, it's probably one of the top 10 diagnoses we see in U.S. clinics. So for sure, it keeps uh, generalists busy. It keeps specialists busy as well. 10
1: to 15% of the population.
3: Yeah, I think you um, probably can find a range of estimates, but I think some of the largest population-based studies come from right here in Olmstead County, and uh, even our studies probably show a range that goes anywhere as low as 8%, up to 20% at any given time.
2: Both men and women affected
3: equally? Uh, You know, that's a trickier question (laughs) because we are, are... Really basing this off what what we see, what who comes in for treatment, so um, it may reflect the healthcare seeking behaviors of patients uh, afflicted with the, such complaints. But it, I think, having said all that, we do think it's likely in the U.S. that there is a uh, a tendency towards a higher incidence in women, maybe one and a half times higher, but that that's, doesn't necessarily hold true globally.
1: Is it true that uh, men tend to have the diarrhea dominant type and women the more constipation type?
3: Yeah, I think that there's, there's truth in that. Although, um, you know, we're talking about such large numbers that you know, we, we certainly see a fair share of overlap. Is there a common age when folks are diagnosed? We tend to think of the diagnosis of the young, but uh, that's really not accurate. Um, in fact, although we certainly get more concerned when somebody presents at a later age with new onset IBS-like symptoms, the it is more likely that you'll have IBS symptoms when you're older than when you're younger. But, yeah, I, I would say in the clinic we tend to see younger patients coming in with the symptoms. So tell us about the symptoms. What are they? What are the most common ones? Well, I, I, I we, tr- we try to keep it as simple as possible. There's, there's probably a, just a, quite a continuum of symptoms in irritable bowel syndrome, but, um, abdominal pain, it's specifically recurrent abdominal pain, um, is probably a hallmark of irritable bowel syndrome. And it's probably, defined a bit further by a relationship to the bowel habit. So um, in general, there will be some measure of relief provided by a bowel movement. Um, And again, I think it's critical to emphasize the fact that it's recurrent and that it also has some degree of chronicity to it. So a patient who has a week of symptoms of abdominal pain related to Bowel urgency does not necessarily have irritable bowel syndrome. This is something that probably needs to be carried forth for, for research criteria, three months. Now, we, it's one of those things that we know when we see it, we know when we hear the story, but certainly you don't want to label somebody. with irritable bowel syndrome has acute abdominal symptoms, even if they may be functional in nature. They're not sufficient to diagnose IBS until there's some, um, some element of chronicity there. Other symptoms? Uh, There are, but not necessarily um, absolutely needed to make the diagnosis. So abdominal bloat is a very common symptom. Um, Abdominal cramping, fecal urgency, uh, those are all common with irritable bowel syndrome, but not necessary to make the diagnosis.
1: Can you make the diagnosis just based on the history, or are there other tests available that will help you make the
3: diagnosis? That's a great question, and I think that's probably led to um, our evolution in terms of uh, recognizing, uh, diagnosing, treating IBS, and using resources appropriately. So it, we probably did more testing than we needed to in the past, and with time, we recognized that those simple criteria I, I, I mentioned earlier, just having that recurrent abdominal pain, having a relationship to the bowel habit, whether it be some relief of the bowel habit, the onset of symptoms with a change in stool form or frequency, those are really accurate to, to make a diagnosis in the absence of alarm features.
1: Well, alarm features might be what and would prompt you to do what?
3: Yeah, ab- absolutely. So alarm features are, are, are symptoms or uh, physical exam signs that should lead us to think that there may be something more sinister going on possibly. Um, And those may be um, something such as blood in the stool, patient with weight loss, fevers, um, continual or continuous abdominal pain, um, any upper GI symptoms such as vomiting, dysphagia or difficulty swallowing. Um, On our exam, if we feel an abdominal mass, Mm -hmm. if the patient has exquisite abdominal pain, if we... Obviously, do a rectal examination where we see frank blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be part of their history, but that becomes an alarm feature. Um, it, those are, those are sy- signs and symptoms that should really prompt another layer of investigation rather than saying we can move forward with treatment for IBS.
2: What is the cause? Why do people get IBS?
1: You're smiling. I bet your colleagues and you sit around because it is so common and say, what in the world is causing all these
3: people to have irritable bowel? I I think it's uh, it's been a source of um, a great deal of research over the last 50 years. And one would think that after 50 years of research, we'd have a nice, succinct answer. But I'm afraid that the, the program probably doesn't have time to go into all the putative mechanisms for IBS, But I think it's probably best to say that it's uh, likely a complicated interaction of um, signals from the gut and their interpretation uh, at, and processing at a central level. What
1: about stress?
3: Is, is it stress-related? Well, I think stress influences symptoms. So I, I think everyone's experienced some influence on their bowel, by way of stress, and, and that speaks to some physiology that we know of, which is that stress does increase intestinal permeability and increases intestinal secretion. So uh, we know that stress can have physiologic effects on the bowel. Now, if you um, place that on top of some, um, we'll say, altered or broken um uh, neuro mechanisms, then yeah, I think it does have a lot of influence on symptoms. But I'd hesitate to say that it's a cause of irritable bowel syndrome.
1: We're talking with an irritable bowel syndrome expert for the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Robert Cratchley. So, Dr. Cratchley, you've told us a lot about who gets irritable bowel syndrome, how common it is, the fact that it's probably a little more common in women than in men. Maybe. Uh, maybe. <laughs> the most common symptom is pain in the abdomen, also bloating. Uh, what else did you mention for symptoms, bloating well, change in bowel frequency. Right, constipation or mm-hmm. diarrhea. So now what we want to know is what you do to help these folks.
3: Yeah, there's, there's a variety of treatments that are available, and I, I think they really span the spectrum of treatment modalities that we have in medicine, really. So there are simply dietary modifications, which have good evidence to support their use in irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, and, we, of course, we have medications, uh, but we also have um psychological interventions and behavioral modifications that can uh, they do have data. As tough as that is to study, there's data to support their use. They can be very effective in IBS treatment.
1: Well, let's take them one at a time and, and start with diet.
3: Yeah. So uh, over 60% of patients with IBS will say that they attach their symptoms to um, food in general or specific food types. And that really hadn't been teased out very well because it's a difficult thing to study, but we've always been aware that some patients will have um, problems with digestion of certain carbohydrates, lactose intolerance, fructose intolerance, but only recently uh, has our field looked into other, um, other aspects of diet that make a difference in irritable bowel syndrome uh, one of these that's kind of gained a bit of traction is uh, a, a type of diet called a low FODMAP diet. FODMAP is just an acronym for types of foods that are highly fermentable, meaning when they get into the gut, the bacteria in our gut probably digest them before we do, and they cause release of osmotically active substances and gas, things that make our guts grumble. That's and a f- guts that you were talking about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I knew it would
1: come of. What about uh, fiber,
3: increasing fiber in your diet? Does that help some it, patients? It sure can. The, the data on fiber have always been uh, weak, however. They, fiber certainly can affect stool form, so it probably can be of benefit in modulating the, the stool form and the bowel habit. It really has sort of disappointing effects in terms of treating the pain of IBS, however. But it's a very safe treatment, and it's always a good starting point. But it has to be cautioned to patients not to try to rush the dose of fiber too quickly because the target dose, if taken from a point where a patient's never taken fiber supplements before, will tend to cause them bloat and abdominal discomfort. What what about lifestyle changes? Yeah, so we we try to ensure that the patients have some level of physical activity, as that does Mm -hmm. have some influence on bowel habit. I think that depending on the patient's type of bowel habit, things like caffeine uh, can have a a poor effect on IBS symptoms, and and the same holds true for uh, things like non-sugar sweeteners. Those can have a a laxative type effect, which would not be good for a patient with a diarrhea type irritable bowel syndrome.
2: Uh, gut health and probiotics are kind of one of the flash <laughs> Exciting. <laughs> You're so I have to ask about that. Do, are probiotics helpful for this?
3: Probiotics are, are I, I think, not harmful. Data are really all over the place for probiotics, and at least the well-done studies suggest that they may have some modest benefit with bloat. I. I don't think there's really enough evidence out there to say they're really going to help the pain of IBS. It'd be something that people can try if it works for them, great. If not, it's not harmful? Absolutely. There, okay. there are very few circumstances where a probiotic would be considered potentially harmful. And those are usually patients who are immunocompromised or have some indwelling central line where we wouldn't want to introduce more bacteria into their system.
1: All right, lifestyle changes, diet. What about me- medications? Anything over-the-counter that will help? And if not, what about prescription medications?
3: Over-the-counter medications are really things that can modulate the stool form in the bowel, and modify bowel frequency. So we're talking about anti-diarrheals, things such as Imodium, potentially Pepto-Bismol, Fiber again is a supplement; it's not really a medication, but we could consider in that over-the-counter category. Uh, Laxatives would be the same for the patient who tends to be constipated. So any over-the-counter laxative, such as Miralax or the stimulant laxatives such as Senna or Dulcolax, could be used for the patient who's constipated. But again, these are more getting at the bowel frequency; probably not going to have a profound effect on the pain. What's the difference between IBS and IBD? That's a great question, and often a question that comes up in the clinic. There's a pretty significant difference, although there is overlap. So IBD is inflammatory bowel disease, and it covers the two subtypes of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Mm -hmm. And these are chronic idiopathic inflammatory conditions that usually require medication to somehow reduce the inflammation that's taking place in the body, whereas irritable bowel syndrome, there may be some evidence suggests there's a very low-level inflammation in a subset of patients, but our treatments are typically aimed at symptoms as treatments for inflammation, IBS, have all had really disappointing results.
2: Well, you mentioned earlier that uh made the difference between men and women having this, and that leads me to believe that, maybe they're equal, but women, like you said, are more likely to come in and get help, which means people are suffering. Yes. And they don't need to, men and women. So what would you say to encourage people who think maybe I should go in and talk with my doctor about this?
3: I think many patients are uh, are worried about a couple of things. They're worried about the the stigma of uh, the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. And second, they're worried about having to be placed on a medication that may have side effects. And I, I would... Try to encourage people to, um, recognize that there are levels of treatment, some of which may have no side effects at all. And we're talking about lifestyle modifications and some of uh, the um, uh, psychosocial therapies. So, um, it's, it's always an opportunity for the patient to at least hear those options to go in and see a, see a specialist about this. There's no commitment to any specific therapy, but to be introduced to some therapies they may have not been aware of is is always promising, I think.
1: So let's talk about uh, prognosis. First of all, is it a lifelong disease? I mean, if you've got it when you're 20 or 30 or 40, are you going to have it for life? And second of all, does it do any damage to the intestines? And is it? are you more likely to get cancer?
3: Yeah, so although it may wax and wane throughout a lifetime, it, it probably is a, a chronic illness. Over the course of a lifetime, it, it's likely to recur, but it's certainly... A situation where if patients know their symptoms well and have had effective treatments, they can recognize those and go on and off therapies for symptoms and have a a really good quality of life in spite of what what is a chronic disorder. With respect to the prognosis, it's great. The longevity of a patient with a functional bowel disease is just as long, if not longer, than the average healthy individual
1: well that's good to hear <laughs> irritable bowel syndrome dr robert Critchley, Uh ibs is a condition that causes well abdominal pain and bowel changes either diarrhea or constipation among other things it's common affecting 10 even up to 20 percent of the population a little more common in women probably or at least they're the ones who go to the gastroenterologist for help <laughs> the treatment options aimed at controlling the symptoms and most patients with treatment get better wouldn't you say dr Cratchley?
3: Yes, absolutely.
1: It can be fairly disabling for some, but it doesn't cause any permanent damage to the colon, doesn't lead to colon cancer. We've been talking with an expert on irritable bowel syndrome, Dr. Robert Kreishley. Thanks for joining
3: us, Dr. Kreishley. Thanks so much for having me.
2: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about a recently approved, fast-acting treatment for depression. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Here's a warning that may raise an eyebrow. Too much fluoride toothpaste can damage children's teeth. A recent Centers for Disease Control and Prevention study revealed 4 in 10 young kids are overusing and ingesting too much fluoride toothpaste, putting them at risk for problems with their permanent teeth. The CDC says parents should teach children, especially 3 to 6-year-olds, how much to use. And here's a hint. It's probably less than you think. Dr. Valerie Cristiani, a Mayo Clinic pediatrician, says kids only need a little bit of toothpaste. She says it's important because if you use too much, then you risk what is called fluorosis. It's a condition that leads to discoloration or pits on the permanent teeth and occurs in many cases when a child overuses and swallows fluoride toothpaste. She says parents should take charge, and the best way to prevent fluorosis is to teach kids that a little paste goes a long way. So, how much toothpaste should little kids use? Dr. Christiani says a child that's younger than three years of age should use a smear amount of toothpaste with fluoride. Now, a smear of paste is about the size of a grain of rice. Once your child turns three, he or she should use a pea-sized amount of paste to brush and swish and spit when finished. And in other news, would you be surprised if your healthcare provider recommended yoga, acupuncture, or massage therapy as part of your treatment for an illness or disease? It's called integrative medicine, an evidence based holistic approach that combines the best of conventional medicine and what had been referred to as alternative care. So when you're sick, Medication or even surgery may be just what the doctor orders. Dr. Adam Perlman, an integrative health specialist at Mayo Clinic, adds an additional question. What else can we do to really improve our sense of well-being? Well, that's where acupuncture, yoga, or tai chi may be integrated into an overall plan of care. Dr. Perlman describes it as helping people to go beyond the treatment of disease and pathophysiology to a place where they are optimizing their vitality evidence shows for instance that acupuncture can help with chronic pain and may be recommended to those with cancer chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia Tai Chi helps with balance and reduces falls in older adults. And yoga may reduce stress, lower blood pressure, and lower your heart rate. But Dr. Perlman says it's not just what you do with your body that's important. He says other things that tend to impact our health and well-being are things like gratitude and relationships and how we address those and a sense of purpose and meaning in our lives. See your health care provider to find out if an integrative health plan is right for you. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shimes. And I'm Tracy McRae. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration recently approved a new treatment, a nasal spray for hard-to-treat depression. The new drug, trade name Spravato, also called esketamine, is given in conjunction with an antidepressant given by mouth nasal
2: spray, which has to be administered by a medical professional in a medical setting, is prescribed for adults who have not had success with other antidepressant medications. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic psychiatrist, Dr. Jennifer Vandevort. Welcome to the program, Dr. Vandevoort. It's really
4: nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you folks as well.
1: Nice to have you here. Uh, uh, Dr. Vandevoort, would you consider this, do you think that this is a significant breakthrough in the treatment of depression?
4: Absolutely. When we think about where antidepressants have been over the past several decades, we've had little success in developing medications with radically novel mechanisms of action. This works on the glutamatergic system, whereas the old-school antidepressants have worked on the serotonergic system. Break it Gluten down.
2: Energy. Yeah. What is the difference? I'm the lay person those here. What's the difference word. between those two?
4: <laughs> so there are different molecules in our brain, basically. Okay. And the thing about ketamine and S-ketamine is that it's a rapid-acting antidepressant that also has anti-suicidal properties. There's nothing else that we have in our disposal that, that does that. So yes, it's a game-changer for the field. What qualifies as hard-to-treat depression?
1: I found that sort of interesting because isn't all depression hard to treat?
4: Well, for some patients, they respond to the first antidepressant they receive. Other patients take multiple trials of antidepressants. So when we think about hard-to-treat depression or treatment-resistant depression, we have to clarify that that is people failing two antidepressant trials at adequate dosages and durations.
1: And this is fast-acting. That's one yes. of the big advantages?
4: Yes. And fast-acting, studies have shown even within 40 minutes, 100 minutes, people are already feeling better. Within a day, again, people are feeling remission from their depressive symptoms. We don't have anything else like that on the market. How, how, is, it, how is that possible? I mean, how is it
2: that a medication, that, a pill that you take, can't have the same effect as this nasal spray?
4: It's a good question. There's active areas of study that are currently researching. What is the mechanism of action for this drug that produces these antidepressant and anti-suicidal effects? Still, I think, questions in that regard. More to learn. What about side effects? Side effects, we look at sedation, dissociation. Sometimes patients will say, well, the, the walls seem wavy or colors seem brighter. Um, sometimes people will have nausea, uh, maybe some vomiting. So it's rare, but it can happen. So patients need to know that up front.
1: And the drug itself gets into your bloodstream and, and thus to your brain much uh, more quickly than something you would take by mouth. It's like nicotine. You know, that's why yes. people smoke. Part of it is that the nicotine gets into your system so quickly through your lungs. And I assume this drug the same way.
4: Yes, that's correct. As ketamine has been delivered intranasally, a lot of the studies that have been done to date have actually used ketamine Intravenously, and so that's also going directly into your bloodstream in that case. But yes, it's faster than an oral.
1: So, is this drug uh, absorbed in the uh, through the nose, the nasal passages, or does it actually go down into the lung when when you?
4: That's a good question. I don't know if we have the answer to that.
1: Okay, but it is much more fast-acting than anything you would take by mouth.
4: Yes,
2: that's correct. So why is it only available in a clinical setting? Why can't I have this like a a asthma inhaler of some sort?
4: So it is a scheduled three substance. And what that means is that it has some addiction potential. We wouldn't want to send somebody out with a a bottle of S-ketamine because they could misuse it. And it has an abuse potential that we want to be very thoughtful of.
1: So um, how often do you use this drug? How often would someone come into the physician's office to have it administered
4: so it's designed to kind of have an induction phase where people do it two times per week for roughly four weeks or so and then they can do it once per week for another four weeks eventually you hope to maybe taper off of the medication but i think the verdict is still out i think there's more to be learned in what is the long-term side effects of this what is the long-term efficacy that's where the gaps in our knowledge exist to date
2: well, it's pretty exciting, too, because the side effects of traditional medication, that like a prescription that you would take, a pill that you would take, are, are there's a lot of them and far flung in many of them. So this is exciting because if you can find a way to help people with their depression and not have all the side effects that come along with traditional antidepressants,
4: that's kind of a game changer. It is. It absolutely is. And again, we don't have anything that works this quickly for depression or suicidal ideation, um, and, and that's a hard-to-treat condition as well. And so that's why this is getting a lot of attention. Rightfully so.
1: How long has this drug been been studied? It does have FDA approval. We uh, we obviously we said that. But how long uh, did it take to study this drug before the FDA determined that it was safe to use?
4: That's a good question. Um, There is a pharmaceutical company that's been investigating it for at least a couple of years, to my knowledge. But a lot of this has come out of the studies using actual ketamine. So S-ketamine is basically one molecule of ketamine. And so ketamine's been studied for a long time. It's been used in pediatrics and um, veterinary medicine. It's approved for procedural sedation and anesthesia. So that's been around for for many, many years. Around 2006, the NIH started studying ketamine IV. And so as um, we've found more studies that show that ketamine's really effective, now pharmaceutical companies are putting their money to see, gosh, can S-ketamine be effective as well? And so it's been, it's been several years.
2: And you said this is for adults only at this point. Are they yeah. working on a version for teens and young adults?
4: Uh, I don't know if they have actually have any trials currently going for teens or young adults. Um, ketamine does have, there's a published trial for adolescents with treatment-resistant depression using IV ketamine.
1: I
2: think m- mental health is... Finally starting to receive some of the attention, the importance, uh, attention to the importance of good mental health. Do you feel like there's a little bit of a shift happening, a tide turning that people are becoming a little more
4: likely to ask for help? I think so. When we, I see a span of population. So I see kids and I see adults. And the older generation that I see is more hesitant to ask for help, and it's a big deal for them to come into the office. The younger population is more likely to ask for help, and I think that is a good change, a shift that I'm seeing.
1: You said that this is for hard-to-treat depression. So uh, how many other drugs would you try before you said, okay, let's try esketomy?
4: So for right now, in order to be considered for ketamine, you should really fail at least two. The patients that we have in our ketamine clinic have often failed anywhere from five to ten, and it just really depends on on the patient. The cost is not insignificant either, so I think sometimes that's a deterrent for patients to receive ketamine or esketamine.
1: And you said cost. How much? How much does this drug cost? Do we know?
4: So... It appears that the company is marketing it at $590, um, up to $885, I believe.
1: Is that for a week or a month? Uh, that's, or?
4: that's per treatment.
1: Oh, really? For one?
4: Yeah, for one treatment. Spray. And, right. And so you'd be doing two of those per week for several weeks, kind of depending on, on the patient.
1: And would insurance cover this in most instances?
4: That is a good question. Um, I think that verdict is still out. That's why they get to, you have to have had a couple of failures yeah. Yeah. through other
2: medications. And what determines a failure of an antidepressant?
4: Oftentimes, you have to be at an adequate dose at an adequate duration. So sometimes it depends on the medication, but that adequate dose would be dependent on the medication. But oftentimes, it's for eight weeks.
1: All right, psychiatrist Dr. Jennifer Van we've been talking about a new nasal spray available for the treatment of uh, depression and it's a significant advance as tracy would say it's a game changer it is. It, it's, it's expensive but fortunately we've got something even better available for the treatment of depression
4: absolutely
1: dr vandervoort thanks so much for being with us
4: thank you
2: we're going to take a short break and when we come back vaccines and kids what you need to
1: know from a mayo clinic expert you're listening to mayo clinic radio on the mayo clinic news network A measles outbreak centered around Portland, Oregon and neighboring Vancouver, Washington, has sickened more than 50 people, most of them children. Forty-seven of those infected were never vaccinated against measles. There have also been measles outbreaks in New York and Texas. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention
2: recommends that children receive measles vaccinations in early childhood. And while most children in the U.S. do get the recommended vaccinations to protect them against infectious diseases such as measles and mumps, recent CDC data have found that a small but growing percentage of young, very young children aren't getting their shots. In fact, the rates of unvaccinated toddlers appears to have quadrupled in the past 17 years. For all of us, and especially infectious disease specialists, the skepticism regarding vaccines is of huge concern. So joining us in studio to talk about vaccine for kids and to give us an update on the flu season as well is Mayo Clinic infectious disease specialist, Dr. Napuni Rajapakse. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rajapakse. It's Thank good to you. see you again.
5: Thanks. It's great to be back.
1: Good to have you here, Dr. Roger Paxi. So it's pretty common knowledge now that the children in the Northeast and other parts of the United States who have gotten measles were not vaccinated.
5: Yeah, so with this uh, current outbreak and what we see in most of these outbreaks that happen uh, sporadically across the United States is that a vast majority of those who become ill um, are people who have not received the recommended uh, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Um, Occasionally, there are some cases in people who received a single dose. Uh, We know a single dose of MMR vaccine is about 93% uh, effective. Two doses are upwards of 97% effective. Um, But by far, the majority have not received the recommended uh, routine vaccines for measles, mumps, and rubella.
2: And the increasing resistance to vaccine is uh, being guided a little bit, a lot, maybe by social media?
5: Yeah, so uh, we see uh, a lot of information on social media regarding vaccines. Um, obviously, some pro-vaccine and some uh, anti-vaccine. Um, but uh, a lot of people are now getting their health news, their medical advice, uh, their scientific news through social media. And so as a medical community, we really have a responsibility to make sure that it's accurate uh, information that people are getting. Um, the interesting thing about social media is kind of what you see is also reflective of the kind of uh, engagement that you have with posts. And so if you have already an anti-vaccine kind of slant, uh, you will be presented with uh information that kind of confirms your views, and so that's one of the big concerns, Um, and it's been quite interesting in the last few months to see uh, some of these big uh, social media groups kind of recognizing this as an issue and starting to take some steps in the right direction.
1: Where's this misinformation coming from? Do we know?
5: So the misinformation comes from a variety of sources, um, kind of dating back to uh, the article by Andrew Wakefield in the late 90s, which many people still kind of bring up as a reason uh, that they are hesitant about vaccinating their children. We know that since um, that article on MMR vaccine and autism came out, we have had numerous uh, numerous scientific studies uh, that were well done that have shown absolutely no link uh, between the two, including a large one that was just released last week, Uh, the largest uh, study in a Danish population, um, over 600,000 children, that again confirmed what we we knew before, which was that there was absolutely no link between MMR vaccine and autism. But those types of uh, pieces of information have a way of kind of working their way into the psyche, and there are people who have profited uh, from kind of spreading that information, including celebrities and other people um, who have gained a following for their views. And so... Um, That can be very difficult to kind of change.
1: What's your reaction to this? I read recently that despite the measles outbreaks across the country, at least 20 states have introduced bills this year that would broaden the reasons why parents can exempt kids from getting vaccines.
5: Yeah, so that is just staggering and very disappointing, I think, as an infectious disease specialist. We know that these infections are preventable, and that's really taking a step in the exact wrong direction. Um, there are states that allow uh, philosophical and religious uh, exemptions uh, for vaccines and to try and expand those, even beyond that, really uh, exposes our, our kids to these life-threatening, serious uh, illnesses for really no reason at all. And so it's very concerning uh, to us. Thankfully, many of these won't get passed, um, but uh, the fact that they're even out there or being proposed is really a huge concern.
2: I don't even know if I want to ask about the Russians. <laughs> about-
5: <laughs> is there
2: anything to the fact that that's part of the misinformation
5: piece? So there have been some articles that have come out recently suggesting that um, some of the misinformation is being spread or amplified kind of by bots and all these uh, things that can post things on social media. Um, So I think it's definitely a possibility and really is not doing anything to to help get good information to parents who are trying to make these decisions.
1: Are there some children uh, for medical reasons that should not get vaccinated?
5: Yes. So there are some uh, legitimate medical reasons why uh, some kids should not receive vaccines. These are primarily centered around the live vaccines. So that's your measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and your varicella or chickenpox uh, vaccine. Uh, Children who have weakened immune systems, whether they've had an organ transplant or receiving chemotherapy, uh, things like that, uh, those children would not be eligible to receive those vaccines because they are kind of live, weakened versions of those viruses.
2: Let's talk about some measles myths. Uh, one of them being that antibiotics will help you. So don't get the shot, but then just get antibiotics if you get if you do get measles.
5: Yeah, so that's a complete uh, myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no antibiotic or antiviral that works against measles. The only care that we're able to offer for that is what we call supportive care or dealing with the symptoms that the child may have. Um, and we know that there are serious life-threatening um, complications that can develop from a measles infection. About one in a thousand kids with measles will develop encephalitis or brain swelling that can leave them with lasting uh, effects. Or death, and one to two in a thousand can die from the infection itself, and so um, very serious complications that are just completely unnecessary in this area era where we have something we can do to prevent these. More myths. Um, more myths, I guess, are that uh, measles is not that contagious. It is, in fact, one of the most contagious infectious diseases. Um, the virus particles can remain suspended in the air for up to two hours after someone with measles has left. And so you never even need to come face to face with someone with measles to contract it. And uh, if exposed, 90 percent of people who are unvaccinated will develop infection. And so that's why um, it is such a difficult uh, infection to control once it has taken hold in a community that does not have uh, immunity to it.
1: We promised our audience we'd ask you about the flu season. It's peaked?
5: This has been an unusual year for flu. So uh, what we're seeing this year is uh, an initial wave of H1N1, which seems to have peaked uh, in the northern hemisphere. Um what we're now seeing kind of on the tail of that peak in some areas, especially in the south, was a second wave of H3N2. Typically, we see one or the other in each season. This year, we're seeing some early indications that we might actually have both in one season, which is unusual. Um, and so we're waiting to see kind of what happens in uh, this area in the north in Minnesota. Um, but it's been a bit of an atypical year so far in other areas of the country.
1: Treatment if your child gets the flu, anything special you should do?
5: So um, there's an antiviral available for treatment of flu called oseltamivir, um, not everyone requires treatment we require tr- we recommend treatment for people who are at high risk of developing complications so that would be uh, definitely children under two years of age children under five years of age may have a higher risk of complications as well uh, pregnant women uh, people with uh, compromised immune systems or weakened immune systems uh, the elderly um, or people who have underlying heart lung or neurologic diseases um, the otherwise kind of average healthy person with the flu will probably recover um, on their own And in that situation, we recommend kind of symptomatic treatment, so Tylenol, uh, I ibuprofen, lots of fluid.
1: So how long uh, are you contagious? When can you go back to work or school?
5: People with the flu are usually contagious for about a day before they even themselves have symptoms and generally lasting for up to a week after onset of symptoms. Um, Young children or people with weakened immune systems may actually be able to transmit for longer than that.
1: All right, infectious disease specialist Dr. Napuni Rajapakse, there is no question in your mind or ours that vaccines prevent serious diseases and deaths. It is truly unfortunate that based on non-scientific information, some parents are choosing not to have their children vaccinated. Measles, for example, as you've mentioned, can be a serious disease, can even be fatal. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Roger Poxy.
5: Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for joining
0: us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.